reduce, reuse, recycle. That's what it says in the Bible, right? Right between to love thy neighbor and the lyrics to O Holy Night. I've memorized that credo with all the intention and attention of a young boy watching a robotic waste bin dance. The message was the passion, but mascots had their chance, and now it's time for action. How blatant these two shades of green are clashing. Let's paint. It's a really niche reference to the death thing, recycling bin. I don't know if it's niche. I feel like a lot of people listening will be, oh yeah, I remember that. Perhaps. I do, like that poem. Do you want to explain what it is for the people who maybe don't get that reference? Nova Scotia had this intense initiative <laughs> that they decided we are going to recycle. And they tried to target the adults, but adults are not impressionable enough. So they went to the kids with all these dancing mascots, as you referenced, yep. and programs on how to recycle and so on. And it goes down in history as one of the most effective recycling campaigns in the world. Did you enjoy those visits to your school gymnasium where you'd all sit cross-legged and watch that, the ro like literally just a robot trash can come out and like do some dances and like and talk to us and stuff? Because I loved it. Of course. That's why I'm here today. <laughs> yeah, changed me. I remember we would take probably every four years field trips to the dump mm. or the recycling facility, put yes. that in air quotes, because it is, they've recycled most everything. But I mean, as a kid, you say, oh, I get to go to the dump today because it is also the dump where we were going. Mm. But I liked that. And that literally is the root of most of my passion for environmentalism. Hey, I think slowly but surely we're like, Filling in our backstories for the listeners. Yes. So they're like learning about us. So it's kind of true crime when you think about it. Mm. Kind of not. Anyway, so that's a good lead into our first question of the day, which we didn't actually specify on last week's episode, but through the week we'd spoken to each other and said, feels like we need to talk a little bit more about the sustainability from an environmental sense of degrowth. Mm -hmm. So that's what the question is. Real life examples of degrowth and its environmental impact, preferably in a positive way. Mm-hmm case studies, if you will. Yeah, and on the hunt for sustainability degrowth case studies, there were surprisingly few. The degrowth literature is increasing daily versus when I learned about it like four years ago, there was nothing. If you type in degrowth to the internet, you'd get this website, which is now pretty big mm. and extensive, and it will link you to most degrowth articles and references on the internet and in literature. So that's really good now, but there's still quite a few, um, not quite a few, what's the opposite of that? A few <laughs> <laughs> uh, case studies. So I'm assuming we both picked one related to food. No. No? Okay. Well, my first instinct was to talk about food and Canada's local food movement. So over the last 10-ish years, Canada across the nation has been investing on local scales, so it's a very degrowth thing, but it's coordinated under this heading of the local food movement. But in local communities, people are deciding, hey, we want farmers markets, we want our local artisans and producers to have a place to be able to sell their goods. Because before that, so like early 2010s and early 2000s, it was either you'd go to Walmart or nothing. I found there wasn't much of an option to shop locally. So this local food movement has really supported that. And I'm going to use that as a degrowth case study in sustainability because when we buy things on the internet or we buy things from those large intermediaries, we are buying things that have been flown in from far away. And that has 
fairly marginal impact on the environment, but it's still an impact. Yeah. And also these companies, when you buy from them, they're making a profit, which they are often investing in fossil fuel companies, in research, which to me is quite unethical. That's true. So when you shop locally, usually you know where the money is going. It's either going to be reinvested into the local economy or reinvested into these small-scale endeavors. Also, a lot of products which are produced in other parts of the world might not have very strict regulations when it comes to manufacturing standards and emissions and you know, yes. the, the factory and the workplace cleanliness, Yes. air pollution, things like this. There's also when food is produced locally, usually it's organic or at least strives to be the organic certification is quite difficult to achieve. But I know a lot of farmers, even if they can't achieve that, they still don't use chemical pesticides and herbicides and they often don't do monocultures. They try to use native species as cover crops or just native species in the first place to grow and farm. Another good thing about local farming and production is that the land isn't sold for development. Hmm. I imagine if there weren't local farms, there'd be local business parks instead True. because that land would be inexpensive for investors. And the environmental impact of a parking lot is far worse than the environmental impact of a plot of farmland. Depending on how it's being farmed, but yeah. Yeah, on a local scale. Another good thing is that there's less of a markup, I find, because if you were to farm locally, it was then sold to a big organization, then it sold back to you, there'd usually be a markup or some kind of right. a twisting of the product. But if you're buying it directly from the people, you like every dollar that you're spending is like you know it's going toward that person. Yeah. And finally it lends to a healthier population because food that's farmed and distributed locally is fresher. Mm. So the nutrients, they're more nutrient rich. So that was my first case study example. Yeah, the localization thing and the middleman or the fact that you said that local products typically, the price more accurately reflects the efforts and the costs that go into the product. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of like shoes. Because mm -hmm. if we're talking about, say, Nike, everyone knows that they have a markup of like 600% based on what the mm -hmm. shoes actually cost. I'm pretty sure that's a, that's a big low ball for it. Yeah. <laughs> um, whereas, let's say you're buying like some locally produced boots. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I feel they're probably going to be more expensive than the, mm -hmm. the Nike shoes, but that might be more worth it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, clothes was something I thought about. I thought about waste as well, because mm. often when we're talking about environmental impact people go to emissions all the time mm -hmm. but i think degrowth and waste is a really big opportunity i agree and it it kind of um got me onto this thought process of circular economics and degrowth economics and consumption in general and i think that's something that we can research for next week i like that because yes. that is probably one of the biggest if not the biggest um opportunities that degrowth offers when it comes to environmental sustainability i would say yeah, because you're going to be more cognizant of your waste and of the waste that goes into the production and also more likely to reduce, reuse, recycle. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I was looking into clothing because I think like food, that's another kind of um, one of the few industries or products where there has been research done. Mm -hmm. as Like it seems like there is attention being put on it, mm -hmm. unlike say... Novelty gifts, mm -hmm. which I always mention on this podcast, but 
Why do we have those? I don't know. Um, but with clothing, so in the UK, about 350,000 tons of clothes go to the landfill each year. Mm. And obviously, this is not a degrowth statistic, but it's a statistic that I think degrowth can change. I think so. How can degrowth change such a statistic? Well, I'll speak personally, as yeah. I often do. If you are constantly buying new clothes, your closet has a certain capacity and you will inevitably get rid of those clothes. And a lot of the time, even if you donate them to those little bins, they still get shipped overseas. And if you try and recycle them, they get shipped to developing countries and really bad for the environment because they don't break down quickly. They clog up sewers and so on. And if you're living a more degrown life, you will mend your clothes produce your own clothes which is my new year's resolution and buy many fewer just yes. have fewer clothes in general yeah make them last longer and um another stat you said about clothes breaking down that i found is that 70 million barrels of oil used annually are for polyester clothes mm -hmm. i was like that's rough no one knows that polyester clothes is made out of oil and as well as that not many people know how many of their clothes are made of polyester, polyester. at least at least partly because yeah. we're always surprised. We're like, oh, man, this feels really nice. This must be, oh, no. Polyester. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good imitator. I mean, we learned that fleece clothing, mm. the word fleece is often just used to describe polyester imitating wool. Yeah, exactly. For the most part, like that, when you think of fleece, the like the fabric of a Patagonia sweater, polyester, real fleece doesn't actually feel like that, which blew my mind. Another thing related to clothing and degrowth I thought of was the way that we wash and dry them because mm -hmm. so much of the footprint of a piece of clothing comes after it's sold to you. Mm -hmm. Even if it lasts a long time, it's going through a really energy-intensive process maybe once or even twice a week or something mm -hmm. when it comes to, to washing it. So the average washer, I think these stats are a little bit outdated, but it's something like it uses 500 watts per cycle and a dryer is many more, it's like 3,000 watts per cycle. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking in a degrowth world, we don't all have to be at the river cleaning them with rocks, yep. even though I would like that. Mm -hmm. But maybe we could just hang them. Hang them to dry, wash them less. Wash them less, yeah. Try and focus on materials which don't build up a stench quickly. <laughs> because I know merino wool you can wear quite a few times, and it's antimicrobial, so you don't need to wash it every time you wear it. And same with jeans, you only are supposed to wash those like once or twice a month, mm. if any. Because you can put them in the freezer and it will like refresh them. There's so many different things you can do besides throwing stuff in the wash at the end of every day or sometimes multiple times a day as you change your clothes. I like sometimes when we're talking about degrowth, we talk about big picture, new buildings, new infrastructure, but there's also things that are just like you can do around your home. My next case study is called Commons-Based Peer Production. I wanted to find something new, learn something new. This is a type of research, which is done based on communal assets. So I picked two companies or organizations that are using this mode of production. And one is called Wind Empowerment, which is a global network of people and organizations sharing knowledge to empower rural communities to build small wind turbines with locally available resources. Sounds great. Very degrowth. A lot of people, when they're thinking about innovation and climate action, they think, well, I'll need to get a university degree. I'll need to 
attend these summits and read all these books. But this organization says we're going to take the information to people, collaborate with them, and it's a network, so it's not just one power just going into a bunch of communities and saying this is how you should do things. Right. It's a connection, and they share resources, they share knowledge, which is wildly uncommon. <laughs> if you have a discovery, your initial reaction is to guard it. Copyright it. Copyright it. Commons-based peer production also includes the creative commons, which we know and love. So you take a picture and you don't say, I'm going to put this behind a paywall. You say, someone will like this for their PowerPoint, and you share it. <laughs> and the other one that I chose is called P2P Labs, which is a research collective. So they have a bunch of kind of community centers, but they're research labs that researchers can come to, work in, and all of their goals are usually to better well-being around the world. So like there's different, it's a collective and it's interdisciplinary, so they're doing like everything under the sun. But there's some people looking into effective building techniques, effective transportation, and so on. So I really liked those two. Yeah, it's like a cool sustainability concept and also degrowth concept because it's not sustainable for us to all just have our own research lab. It's better True. if we share them. It's not sustainable for, oh, this one community has it figured out of how to live sustainably or how to live better. They're going to keep it to themselves. Sharing is caring. Yeah. I had a few questions that I've been thinking about a lot that were not related to the episode and that I didn't exactly want to try and answer on the episode, okay. but are also related to degrowth and environmentalism. The reason I didn't want to talk about them so much is because they're a little bit negative. And I like when we keep solar scene just this nice sketch or painting of the future, sometimes mm -hmm. using real life examples as we just tried to do, but most often just speaking completely uh, divorced from the reality of how we can actually manifest these things in, in the real world. It's true. So these are some questions I thought maybe the, the listeners could just... I also had an assignment for the listeners. <laughs> just ponder for themselves. <laughs> Here's the thing. I did not want to call it an assignment because that sounds so like arrogant. I don't, I don't know. I don't, feel, I don't want to feel like I'm talking to a bunch of people and saying, so here's your homework for next week, guys. Well, I was planning on saying that I know that you later, were going to say so that. You didn't know that. We didn't discuss this. No, I know. Why are we on the same wavelength? I don't know. Mine, mine are kind of like um, a little bit negative. Okay, you can do that. And so I'll the three were, um, what are the institutional barriers to degrowth? This is kind of what I, I wanted to say it after the poem, but I forgot to. When we're talking about like reduce, reuse, recycle, and in Nova Scotia, and I'm sure a lot of other listeners can relate, there are these big government pushes mm -hmm. when it comes to sustainability in certain directions. So mm -hmm. I remember as well as the robot, we had like teachers showing us that you could stitch together waste to form clothes. Mm -hmm. So she showed us like a hat or a bag made out of juice boxes. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, so this is the future, huh? But then I'm wondering now, you know, maybe slightly older and more cynical, I'm like, they weren't really telling us too much. No. They were fun and they were energizing. I don't know that they're kids, so you don't want to tell them the mm -hmm. world's going to end. But um, it was all very much from the start of our education. Here's the good things from within the consumerist framework. For instance, mm -hmm. buy the juice boxes, then do this. It was never, a, it was never questioning the fact that we bought juice boxes. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's the first question. The, the institutional barriers to degrowth. The next one sounds kind of like conspiratorial. It's who would be the people most negatively affected by degrowth 
because I know when we're talking about media literacy and assessing biases and you know trying to ascertain who to trust media wise mm -hmm. it's often important to look at well who would this thing this potential floated policy change who does this really mm -hmm. benefit things like that so that's what I think about degrowth and it goes with the next question which is is degrowth popular why or why not and which parts of it because I've been occupying my time a little bit by reading hit pieces against degrowth yes. on like really popular news platforms. Yeah, I was surprised how many news platforms had articles on degrowth. And they're all negative, right? And they're often negative. Yeah. But I, I'm not surprised. So yeah, that's, um, and it makes it seem like there's this consensus against it. Mm -hmm. And they always, the articles always do that. They, I think that, I mean, this is just my opinion. I, I encourage people to check them out. There's some on Vox. I think there's some on The Guardian, just a lot mm -hmm. of websites like that. A lot of them are editorials, so mm -hmm. I'll mention that. But I tend to think that these publications are kind of co-signing the opinions of editorials when they publish them. That's just mm -hmm. the, the, the view that I have. Yeah, and, and the tone that a lot of these pieces have is as if they're speaking for the general public by saying, well, people are really against this. And mm -hmm. I'm like, but that's just you saying it. I don't, I don't think degrowth is really in the mainstream, as in people are discussing these ideas mm -hmm. and I think a lot of it is the way the ideas are packaged mm -hmm. which is why I I think which is one of the reasons why we've chosen to discuss degrowth first on this podcast for instance is because we think it's important to talk to people about degrowth in a way that doesn't demonize it because I feel like there will be a lot of agents who want to demonize it mm -hmm. I mean degrowth primarily is a attempt to re-radicalize the environmental movement. I mm. feel like the environmental movement has been watered down to be digestible. That's true, yeah. Which we want people to digest it, please. <laughs> but also, we need to get back to the 70s where it was like, everyone was just, I felt like everyone was on fire for the environment. Well, it is a people first thing. Whereas yeah. um, a lot of the environmentalism that you said is palatable today is company first. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, when companies tweet about social justice or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, is degrowth popular? Because degrowth is really about restructuring the economy so that people are happier. That's mm -hmm. like a big part of it. So yeah. it doesn't make much sense that its ideas would be very unpopular. Yeah. But they might be, I don't know. But yeah. I just don't think they are. I don't think they are either. If you take a look into it. I was reading one of the first ever articles written about degrowth by, I never know how to pronounce their name. Georgios Kallis, yeah. is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Um, and he wrote this, he's kind of like the father of degrowth. His name's all over the place. Yeah. Yes. And so this primary article, one of the first things he said was basically attacking the nuclear, what do you call them, nuclear optimists? Yeah, sure. And he was saying things that I always see quoted in these anti-degrowth articles. And it's like, if you literally read like two paragraphs on, he explains himself. They're taken out of context. Yeah, but mm. it's like these people who are writing these degrowth hit pieces, <laughs> they've probably read the first two paragraphs of the first ever work on degrowth. Right. And it takes a bit of a deeper dive into understanding that it's a local movement. It's not a global, like everyone's rooting for the exact same thing. It's a collection of ideas. Mm. So yeah, I found that funny. I had another case study and it's, about the buns trading zones, which I've talked about a little bit before, but I wanted to talk about more because I think it's a really great project. So it began in 2013 and it is a app website 
where you have a profile and you have these are the things I'm looking for mm. and these are the things I have to trade. And it's not like you then ship it to someone across the country or across the continent. It's within your community. So usually even within walking distance. And that's just like everything degrowth to me. It's about building community. It's about reducing your waste and finding extra economic ways of sustaining yourself. Yeah, I mean, the economic is such a negative word when it comes to the self and happiness mm -hmm. and the individual because of how our economics are today. But yeah. it doesn't have to be soul-crushing and community-destroying, really. Mm -hmm. Like, we were watching a documentary about Scotland's islands. Yes. I don't know why we were doing that, but we were. And um, <laughs> the, the host talked about how traders used to go from island to island in a boat or sometimes just carrying their wares on their back. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's such a nice idea. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it builds community. Yeah. Whereas it can really be argued that a lot of economics today destroys community. Yeah. I might actually read an excerpt from this book because it really, really spoke to me. And this is going to be talking about economics and I just feel like it sums it up really well, like what degrowth yeah. is in related to economics. Why should we degrow? Is like the heading. Yeah. And this little section says, to avoid climate catastrophe, ecosystem destruction, and resource depletion. This cannot be done with technological improvements and simple behavioral changes. The scale of the economy has to decline too. So that sentence there is the one that I talk, I'm talking about where people often attack and say, oh, they're against technology and they're against um, behavior change, which is not true. It's just that one sentence. And then the rest of the book explains and then it keeps saying, during 300 years of industrialization, there has been a strong correlation between economic growth and many forms of resource use and environmental damage, most notably energy use and CO2 emissions. The few countries, mostly in Europe, that have lately stabilized their CO2 emissions or their material flows have done so either because of economic shocks, such as the ex-communist countries, or by exporting the production of their consumer goods elsewhere, such as countries like the UK. After years of intergovernmental deliberations following the Stockholm and Rio environmental conferences and tons of ink spilled in the name of sustainable development, the only concrete declines in CO2 emissions came since 2008 as a result of the recent economic crisis. This was written in 2011. So basically, we keep saying economics can fix sustainability issues. Right, through innovation. Through innovation, through, oh, if you get to a certain point, then your emissions decline, but there's very little proof for that. I had, another, I had another quote which actually illustrates almost the exact same thing. Yeah. <laughs> and it says, clean energy might help deal with emissions, but it does nothing to reverse deforestation, overfishing, soil depletion, and mm. mass extinction. A growth-obsessed economy powered by clean energy will still tip us into ecological disaster. That's a quote by Jason Hickel from a book called Less is More, How Degrowth Will Save the World. And I would add to the things that he listed, waste. Like green energy just doesn't do anything about yeah, the economy, really, like all these other issues. Yeah, it's a huge issue. Like mm. the climate crisis is vast. Therefore, the solutions can't just be green energy, can't just be veganism. It has to be a project. Yeah, and I would argue even, let's say innovation did solve deforestation, overfishing, soil depletion, mass extinction, waste, mm -hmm. etc., which is an impossibility given how economics work, but mm -hmm. let's say it did somehow, I would say, okay, 
well done for achieving environmental sustainability, but socially and psychologically, mm -hmm. we're still going to be where we are, which is not on a good path. Yeah. <laughs> which transitions well into our next two questions for the episode. Yeah, I think it does. Um, one of which was, what is a degrown internet? And the other one was, what does a degrown self look like? Or what can I do to be degrowth? Yeah. And I think these two questions are kind of intertwined, but we can talk about the internet first if you want to. Okay. For me, I was thinking about it. I just have a few points, but a degrown internet is intentional. I have that in bold. Whoa, I have that in bold as well. Are we like the same <laughs> person this week? Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's probably really annoying for the listener because <laughs> we just sound like the same person but with different pitches. <laughs> I don't understand. We've been playing too many um, rounds of code names and we're too in sync. So, yeah, intentional. What does that mean to you? Well, I tried to um, answer this question as succinctly and as close to degrowth as I could because I know mm -hmm. that if I was just given leeway to rant about the internet, I would and I would kind of hijack the episode. I suspect we'll have an entire semester on the internet at Probably. some point. Yeah, that, so. that's why I wanted to keep it close yeah. to degrowth. So I returned to the definition of degrowth mm -hmm. and looked about, oh, let's degrow in the areas that are harming us or others or mm -hmm. the sustainability of our endeavors and grow in the areas that are helping us. Mm -hmm. So I thought that a lot of the harm that I think the internet does is because we are using it to grow ourselves and our society in ways which we shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's really a conscious decision because I think most people would agree that these are bad things, mm -hmm. but we're all essentially addicted. Yeah. So we do them anyway. And kind of the, the antidote to that would be intentionality as in self-awareness and reassessing our individual and collective internet use mm -hmm. to better foster things like education. Yeah. real connection between people not just social media which i honestly think i mean we're in a kind of unique position among really young people in that we kind of remember the start of social media yes you know we're like the last generation that kind of remembers when facebook came along mm -hmm. or the newest generation i guess that remembers that like everything that came after us we're just born with it essentially mm -hmm. and i think at the start it did work as in oh look what our aunt's doing over mm -hmm. here and, and things. But now it's more of a game to try and get famous mm -hmm. more than anything, really. Yeah, I mean, I try to be quite intentional with my social media use, but I found myself, I find, feel like you have a relapse every like few months of there's new issues with it almost. Relapse is the real word for it. Like it is just an addiction. Yeah, so like my most recent realization is that Oh, I was intentional. I unfollowed everyone who I just found I didn't really care to know the ins and outs of their lives. Mm. And I shifted towards following people who I found inspired me. But then I started to find that these people I was comparing myself to, and it's just not realistic for me to live a life like them. And it was harming me. And I think inspiration is important, but when you're seeing every single day what this person's having for breakfast or what like 20 different people are having for breakfast and what they're doing with their day for work and so on just like drives you in a billion different directions yeah which is not conducive to wanting to act in the moment act mindfully act communally your heads in a bunch of different places because you're seeing all these different people that's one of the limbs that i think we should cut off 
in yeah. our degrowth of the internet. Yeah. I thought celebrity culture, memes. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of a meme to discuss it critically because people are like, oh, they're just memes. Mm. But what does it actually add to society? Mm -hmm. I would argue not much. Mm -hmm. And I don't especially like the type of humor that memes often propagate. And just in general, things that appeal to and indulge our worst sensibilities as human beings, mm -hmm. which I think is a lot of the consumer internet today. Mm -hmm. Another point that I had, I had three, mm -hmm. was um, better separating it from real life. Mm -hmm. We've talked about this quite a lot, but just it doesn't need to be everywhere. In your pocket. In your pocket, yeah. I, I mean, there's the thing about, oh, you should be at a concert and just be there, not with your phone out and things. There's that. But there's also like, I see restaurants where menus and um, waitresses are just using iPads. Mm -hmm. I'm like, that doesn't, that just doesn't need to be an iPad. Mm -hmm. And I understand that it might be increased efficiency, but I would say at the expense of what? Because I think it, it has a, an effect on us, mm -hmm. which is removing us from the tactile world. Yeah, I think so. A couple of my ideas about it were no advertising, mm. which is kind of self-explanatory. On the internet, you mean? Yeah. That would be beautiful. It would be. Because <laughs> I was thinking, how would I like to use it versus what stopped me from using it that way? And I said social media and advertising. Because even if you're on a news website, you're being advertised at. And I like will always go to those links if they interest me. And I know I'm probably like, what do you call me? You always say that I'm like impressionable or whatever. And I am. <laughs> but I feel like that's what kids are and people who are just being used yeah, to the internet. Definitely. They're impressionable. People are definitely going to track down an ad that we have put out for the podcast at some point and they'll be like, mm -hmm. oh, but what about this, huh? huh? <laughs> I don't actually think we have put out any ads. Uh, we did in the, once. In the traditional sense. Of, yes, we, yeah, we did a But that was point. for a different podcast. That's right. Yeah, so not for this one. They can't find us. No. <laughs> the last point I wanted to talk about was quality over quantity, mm -hmm. meaning that a degrown internet, much like a degrown world, has us engaging with fewer things, be they news stories, art in the form of movies or videos or music or whatever, mm -hmm. but at deeper levels mm -hmm. rather than the current inundation of surface level things. So for instance, when I say, oh yeah, just checking out the news or whatever, mm -hmm. it literally just means scrolling down headlines. Yeah. But it's like, if I was actually interested in, I don't know, Corona, mm -hmm. I don't know why I would be, but if I was, mm -hmm. I would click the link and read the, the article. Revolutionary. Yeah, I know. It's a crazy idea. Yeah. My final point was that it'd be user-friendly and not so anti-consumer. Mm. And I feel like that kind of goes along with advertising. But I feel like the internet and even just like the technology that we use is slightly, it's intended to get us hooked, infinite scrolling and oh, so yeah, on. Of course. So it wouldn't be like that. It would have our well-being in mind, perhaps. So for instance, when websites make it like a, a labyrinth to try and unsubscribe mm -hmm. like amazon does this i think like it's really hard to delete your amazon account mm -hmm. for obvious reasons yeah exactly and that leads me to the organism of the week okay so i was scrolling through letterbox which is a movie social media basically and i have an account and i follow one person and his name is aaron and so i was creeping his movies that he had watched <laughs> and i started to get offended at all the movies that he had watched without me <laughs> And there was one in particular that stood out, Aaron, and it was called Capybara Walking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a real, that was a real roller coaster ride. I didn't know what it was <laughs> until you showed me later today. 
And it was it's just a video from the 1800s of a capybara walking for yeah. 36 seconds. I want to say it was like 1887. It was yeah. definitely not worthy of any bitterness or envy that you might have But I felt expressed. it. <laughs> so I'm not even going to show you a picture. I'm going to ask you to rely on your knowledge of capybaras to describe what they look like. Okay. Um, they're brown. They are. They are mammalian. Mm-hmm. They're probably... I mean, it was just a picture of itself in, in really close up, so it's hard for me to scale it, but I'm going to guess they're about knee height. I have measurements. Oh, you have no... no yeah, no, so okay. they're four to six feet, or 4.6 feet long. Long, yeah. And two feet tall. Okay, so about knee height. Yeah, If you've got really height. tall knees. Tall knees. Um, they are kind of like a bear and an otter mm. procreated, and they created the capybara. Yes. They have... They had weird legs, like they were kind of dog-like. Kind of pig-like, kind of dog-like. Yeah, yes. but also kind of beaver-like. And obviously, the star is the face, mm-hmm. which is just very cute. Yes. I don't know how else to express it. Yeah, so they're rodents, giant okay. rodents, the biggest in the rodent family. Ah. And they're native to South America. They're herbivores. They have seven years that they live on this sweet earth. And they're 77 to 143 pounds, so they're heavy. Wow. Yeah. It's heavier than me. Heavier than me. They're, they're big. Two times the size of a beaver. Imagine that's swimming at you. Oh, but they the swim. the thing is, they swim. They are semi-aquatic. They're like mm. platypi. Mm. And they have partially webbed feet. They're related to guinea pigs. So they're kind of like giant guinea pigs. And as I said, they're herbivores, which is kind of reassuring. Because if they were carnivores, I'd be scared of them. Do you them. think you could... Take one? Wrestle one? Yeah. No. Their fur or their coat is prickly, kind of. Like it's Whoa, coarse. Whoa, really? I thought they were, they look kind of slick. They look soft, but it's a very coarse ah, fur, which I which kind of freaks me out. Mm. Yeah. And they're highly social. They are in herds as large as a hundred, which is pretty cool to me. And they're not threatened, which was surprising, because they look like one of those animals. It seemed like they should be threatened or extinct. Oh, one of those pointless animals? <laughs> Not pointless, but <laughs> no, the but ones that look pointless, ancient. Pointless, like the flightless birds in Australia. It's yes. like, oh, really? When you learn mm-hmm. that one of those has gone extinct, you're like, they were still around? <laughs> <laughs> also, it's so sad that you have to describe an organism of the week and be, they're not threatened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's a really good, rare thing about yeah, it. Yeah, so they, they're good. And I just finally wanted to wrap it up by using the etymology of their name, because I thought, capybara. What a cool name. And it derives from a language called Tupi, which is an extinct language from the Tupian people in Brazil. Mm. And it's ca, which means leaf, pi, which means slender, u, which means eat, and ara is a suffix, which means one who eats slender leaves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is, a, that is a rather unique word. Yeah, I really Makes like sense. it. And I think they're cool, so that's why I picked them. And also relating to my experience of jealousy with Aaron's movie list. Yeah, also the listeners are probably like, oh, how much time do you spend on social media? Because you, oh, I was on Letterboxd, which is a social media for movies. <laughs> it's like the opposite of everything that we talk about. <laughs> but I think it's a good point. It's a, it's a good thing to mention because we are um, ourselves lab rats. Yeah. Or case studies. I never intend to make it seem like I don't feel the, the pull of the internet. Or all the bad things about today. Yeah. It's how we speak about them so intimately. And one more thing that I want to mention before moving on to the final question, kind of a lead-in, is my assignment that I came up with. And I'm also going to assign it to you, Mm. Aaron. 
and it's to take a sustainable development goal and relate it to degrowth. So I was going to do it myself. was yeah. going to go through all 17 and relate it and use it for a discussion today. But that would have taken hours. That's very fun. Yeah, that's a good one. So I'll read them out in case anyone just like doesn't know what the sustainable development goals are and you're like interested. And I mean, you don't have to like have it done by next week, but just like a thought process. So there's no poverty, zero hunger, good health and well-being, quality education, gender equality, clean water and sanitation, affordable and clean energy, decent work and economic growth, which I think is a contentious point, which is, you can write about that if you want, industry innovation and infrastructure, reduce inequality, sustainable cities and communities, responsible consumption and production, another contentious one, climate action, life below water, life on land, peace, justice, and strong institutions, and finally, partnerships for the goals. So you can pick one or many, and we'll talk about it next week. Yeah, I'll pick one because quality over quantity. Yes, and, true. And um, just thinking about it, that would make for a good podcast by itself, giving the idea to any Westerner who wants to start a podcast. Just yeah. like each season or each month about a sustainability goal yeah. in relation to degrowth or something like that. Yeah, or you could do them in relation to different topics. And I also had a question for next week that I thought of when we were talking about internet. And I was wondering if we already talked about it, but have we talked about technology and degrowth? No, innovation, technology, yeah. degrowth. Yeah, we could talk about that. I think that's a good question for next week is like the relationship between technology and degrowth. Finally, which I think is topical given that it's a new year and everyone are setting revolutions, resolutions. What does a degrown self look like? Go. <laughs> um... I thought there's a lot of superficial or behavioral changes that we could talk about mm -hmm. as Western. I mean, there's a lot. And yeah. I'm sure we could do that. But um, I think a lot of the Westerners would know mm -hmm. them. Oh, read instead of watching YouTube. Yeah, you know. And again, I, I didn't want to really make it sound like I'm talking down to people or telling people what to do to be better or something, even though it would just be me mostly talking to myself. And when I say superficial, I don't mean that those things are... Maybe that's not a good word for it because I don't mean that those things are insignificant. I think they're mm -hmm. very significant because we are what we do. But mm -hmm. I don't know. I just wanted to look at it a different way. So I was thinking about, say, similar to how I talked about the internet, like a kind of fundamental degrowth of the self, as in critiquing some of the paradigms regarding what an individual is mm -hmm. in today's world. So one of them is that we're purely economic actors. Mm -hmm. And I, I kind of mentioned that earlier with the, the idea of like the guy or girl jumping from island to island, mm -hmm. flogging their spoons. Mm -hmm. That just seems like such a cool idea to me. Yeah. So what, what do you think about that idea of envisioning oneself as more than just an economic actor? I think that's crucial to sustainable mental health, sustainable mm. participation in society, because when we're reduced to just an economic actor, I'm reading this book called The Art of Loving, and it says, to start off, we need to talk about the issue with people right now. And it basically says, we just, we all have this desire to fit in, to not be alone. Which, from the time we're separated from a mother at birth, we feel, pretty much. And the modern way of remedying that is either often, like, alcoholism or drug addiction, <laughs> or it's conformity. So it's, if I'm a part of this process, I'm a part of this economy, if I fit in with what I wear, what I do, what I say, I'm not alone. And but that's not true, as we all know, from attempts to feel not alone 
it doesn't work. Like you have to kind of work on yourself enough and be so confident in yourself that you don't feel alone <laughs> kind of is like the yeah, only way to do it. You're right about like individualism, individuality rather and degrowth. I never thought about that, but that's a, that's an important point because like I'm trying to compare, say, a city to a person. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about a city and degrowth, we often say, well, lean into what's there, lean into what grows there, lean into the climate, lean into the culture of the architecture and the infrastructure and things like this. Mm-hmm. Do that, but for a person. Yeah. Figure yourself out. Kind of. kind of figure yourself out. My first point was like making mental health a priority because everything else I was going to list, I'm like, oh, that's all well and good. But if you like don't feel safe in your own head, you're not going to be wanting to do these other things. Mm. So I think a degrown person is like a really honest with themselves, really like authentic person because it takes authenticity and confidence to come out and say, I'm struggling with this mental illness or I have these experiences which I need to work through in order to be, to then move up the hierarchy of needs, sort of. It's true. Yeah. Something else I wanted to mention Bring it back to Whisper of the Heart, which is a movie I talked about last week. Yes. Because there's a quote from there that really stuck with me the last time we watched it, which was about choosing which parts of yourself to polish. Ooh, because, yeah. Because um, so often, again, this, this is about degrowth because you choose which areas to degrow and which areas to grow. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that next week with regards to innovation and technology because I think it's a misconception that degrowth ignores those things. Mm-hmm. But with regards to the self, it's like, it saddens me that it's so easy to spend years trying to fix yourself or grow mm-hmm. in areas that you don't actually want to mm-hmm. for the sake of getting a job or mm-hmm. providing for your like noble reasons, providing mm-hmm. for your family or or just staying afloat or mm-hmm. staying sane. So yeah, I think that's something that in in general should be better taught to children, you know, the way that we view ourselves whether we should work on strengthening our strengths or our weaknesses, things like this, because there's a lot of kids who are bashing their heads against the wall in, say, calculus in university because Mm -hmm. they chose that degree and they're saying, why is this not working? Mm -hmm. It's like, because you don't like calculus. Mm -hmm. That's one one of the reasons. Like, I thought about that recently because we're both trying to learn French. Mm -hmm. And um, kind of a revelation I had was it helps a lot when you when you have an appreciation for the language outside mm-hmm. of your need to learn it. Yeah, outside of the practical value. Exactly, the economic value. Yeah. When you, have an, uh, when you like it, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, that, that helps a lot and can often, I mean, you might consider it necessary to mm-hmm. success. Yeah. I like the analogy of stones, thinking of ourselves as stones. I wrote that we have to see ourselves as foundation stones of community. Because when you think about a degrown society, I always say building community, building community. But if we see ourselves as that important, as like I could be the foundation of a community, I could be one of the stones that build the foundation and then from there generations build upon it. Like in Canto, the movie, that's a theme in there. It's like if you value yourself, which you have to, to like be a degrown person, you'll want to work on yourself. And it's not selfish. It's because yeah. I think a lot of the, a lot of the problem is that people don't value themselves. Mm-hmm. Of course, I don't blame them for it. No, I think everyone struggles with self esteem today. Yeah, for a multitude of reasons. But it's like we don't value ourselves. So, for instance, we are we were I, I should say really 
feverishly looking for clubs or societies to join. Mm -hmm. But then we had this realization, maybe we could start one if mm -hmm. there isn't one of this exact Mm -hmm. uh, mode that we want to be in, yeah. maybe we should start one. But, you know, that thought doesn't even come to us because for so many reasons we are, have a very low opinion of ourselves. Yeah, exactly. But a strong community is made up of strong individuals. Speaking of which, the Solo Scene Club is, uh, is coming. So just... Oh, it is. Just, just telling the listeners that, yeah. Okay, exciting. <laughs> <laughs> a couple more things that I'm going to just mention and then I'm done is that a degrown person, to me, I thought, looks at time as the source of all value. And I think, I don't mean that in, like, it's more valuable than relationships, but I mean relationships are time. Like, relationships are parts of your life that you've given to another person or you've shared with another person. And I think we often see the source of all value as money or as possessions. But it's, like, your time, like, all your possessions are your time. Just seeing the hours of, in each thing makes you just like hug them every time you use them. Like I got a coffee um, French press recently. Right. And it was like $12. But I, for some reason, that one thing in particular, it's just something that's really pretty to me and it's really practical and I always see it and I like embrace it. Hmm. It's like Marie Kondo, I feel like. I embrace it with my mind. I'm like, I love this. Versus a coffee machine that I got like a year ago and it was more expensive, it's more fancy, but it's like, I don't feel like embracing it. So I should get rid of it. Even though it's quicker to make the cup of coffee, no? Yes. The coffee is. machine. Mm -hmm. So when you're talking about time, it's mm -hmm. like there's two ways of valuing time. One is the strictly yeah. economic sense, as in get the coffee machine because over time it would save you time, time which is money, money and yeah. you know, like that. <laughs> um, or there's the more romantic sense, mm -hmm. more aesthetic sense, which is, but how am I spending that time? Mm -hmm. So for instance, I don't want to sound like I'm against this guy, but one of these hip, hip pieces I was reading about degrowth, um, I checked out the author of mm -hmm. it because I was like, who does he work for? And I found, <laughs> I found his, um, his Twitter account and I was just shaking my head as I read all of them because one of the first tweets I saw, which I thought just embodied the whole, the whole perspective, which I really strongly disagree with, mm -hmm. was about the efficacy of listening to podcasts at 2.5 times speed. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I really don't want to um, make it seem like I'm, I'm calling out anyone who listens to this at 2.5 times speed because anyone who listens to this very thank very thankful for you. Yes. <laughs> but um yeah, that it's just that idea of well, it's quicker and you know, you can still absorb it. So mm -hmm. why not? It's like because for most people, I mean, if you find it fine to listen to, I know we kind of talk slow sometimes. Mm -hmm. That's fine. But for most people would say it's a more pleasurable experience to listen to something at regular speed. Mm -hmm. yeah. I watched a video on speed reading this morning. Mm. Because I I feel like I have this it's, it's irrational. Like, it's definitely irrational, and I do not mean to offend anybody who listens to audiobooks. But when people put out those YouTube videos, and they're like, I read 300 books this year, and 250 of them were audiobooks, I just, like, shake my head and laugh. <laughs> That's because, such a hot take. Because it's like, <laughs> you, you have this thumbnail, this... I don't even know where I'm going with this. This is just a rant in my head. But I was like, I respect the speed reader who's out here reading the books who's put in the work to become good. But if you're saying you're listening to books, I feel like it doesn't count in my head. And I like, I know it counts, but I just, there's the romance, like reading the book is so different to me than listening. And like, if you sit down with your coffee and you're listening to your audiobook, that's different. If that's like how you read. But I know that these people are listening to 350 books a year. 
they're probably doing it while they're driving or while they're like cleaning the house. You're not like, it's not intentional, which I don't love. I'm not going to lie. I think that's an absurd opinion, but, um, <laughs> but I think it's a good one to end on because sometimes <laughs> as it comes, like I said, about fleshing out our characters for the listeners. <laughs> now we each have to have something that's a little bit irrational. So that's yours. Okay. Hates audiobooks. We can eventually put that on a t-shirt when we sell it like the, uh, like the greenwashers that we are. <laughs> Because it'll be made on like 50% recycled fabric or something like that. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, that's probably a good place to end up before I start ranting with something else random. Yeah, I feel like a degrown person is just like creative. They like are romantic about things. So yes, thank you all for listening. Hope you appreciated this episode and our conversation. And we look forward to hearing from you guys if you want. Our emails are in the description and our zine link is also there if you want a companion to this series and our tiktok too yeah thanks for listening bye